So hello and welcome to another episode of Rebel City Podcast. This week's guest, we had Ray Wilford. Uh, Ray Skyped in to talk about um, Calf Duncan. Now, I would probably suggest that nobody has ever heard a Calf Duncan, but Calf was probably Scotland's most prominent female political activist ever, um, arguably, and um, probably the most influential political activist that you've never heard of. Just to give you a snapshot of the type of thing that we spoke about, um, Calf ran a campaign for Winston Churchill in Dundee uh, and won a landslide victory, a record-breaking victory then and now. She um, was a prominent communist, went to jail for speaking her mind on street corners. She also was uh, LGBT and... LGBT, I don't know what the, the correct sort of thing for the time was, but um, it was suspected that Calf was gay and she opened up her house to other people um, that were in the same sort of community. Some of these people went on to join the International Brigade and fight Franco and fight fascism. And Calf also fought fascism herself against Alexa Mosley. Um, this story is incredibly intriguing for many many reasons but one of the bits that really interested me um, and caught my attention is the fact that it looks like she was doctored out of Winston Churchill's wedding pictures she was a good friend his wife they had met at university and one of the things that I was taught during school was the sort of the disgrace that Stalin's communist government had doctored pictures to take out members of the government that they had had killed and it looks to me that even though the British government didn't kill Calf, that they've potentially doctored her out um, a history. I'd never heard of Calf, and um, it was an absolute pleasure to learn about somebody that was so prominent and influential at the time, but that we've never really heard of. Um, Ray knows this stuff inside out. He's wrote a play, he's wrote a book, and we cover that in the podcast so without further ado here's Ray So, hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Rebel City Podcast. Um, this week we're extremely fortunate to be talking with uh, Ray Wilford, um, <clears throat> author, kind of playwright and uh, you know festival organiser as well, if I remember right. Um, and predominantly we're going to be talking about um, Kath Duncan and uh, Ray's book, The Last Queen of Scotland. Um, I, we were tweeting about this in the build up to the the, the show, um, while doing my research, and you know this is something that I think a lot of our recent followers for the labour movement and you know, um, the, you know the left who have been shown as about eleven recent weeks are really going to enjoy this story. Um, Kath Duncan is somebody who, even after just a couple of days research, I don't think either of the two is can believe we don't already know mm -hmm. about. Agreed. Um, so, um, hi Ray, how are you? 
Yeah, hi. Thank you very much for giving me this opportunity and uh, actually giving a voice to Kath back in Scotland in 2019. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not far away where we are now. Um, so, Ray, I mean, I, I don't know, I've, I've obviously kind of given the broad strokes, but I don't know if you want to just take a wee bit of time to introduce yourself to our, our audience. Yeah, um, my my name is, is Ray Wolford. I, I, I'm a social activist. I established one of the largest food banks in the UK. Uh, I'm a writer. I write for the London Economic. I've just written the bi- book biography of Kath Duncan, The Last Queen of Scotland. And while I was working on the book, when I was touring in Scotland and trying to do the research, everybody said, oh, you should write a play. Yeah. And I thought, well, how do I write a play about, you know, the woman that's done so many amazing things? Mm. And so I focused the play on um, the civil rights movement, her role in the establishment of the National Council of Civil Liberties, yeah. and the paper called Liberty. Mm-hmm. And bizarrely, we got the funding for it from the Harvey Milk Institute in San Francisco. Okay. And we staged it as part of the LGB History Month mm-hmm. in February of this year. Right. And, you know, absolutely really proud that people love the play. It got great reviews, and we're hoping to bring it to Scotland in 2020. Yeah. And if it ever comes up, make sure you, you, you let us know. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, in terms of where we are with this, Kath Duncan, as I say, getting into this, we were completely oblivious, as as I think a lot of people are. Um, so, you know, Kath Duncan, let's just start at the beginning. She was quite a humble beginning uh, as a teacher, I think, in sort of Kirkcaldy. Um, I think what I'd read in, in the build-up was that, you know, she became sort of politically conscious at a time when she was sort of reading and writing letters for servicemen during the war or between the wars. That's that's exactly true. I mean, um, she she had a really tough life herself. I mean, she uh, was raised in five. Her father died at the age of five, and she had a sister, Marguerite. But her mother was a seamstress, and what would normally happen in those circumstances? The young girls born into a family like this that were very poor would go into the service of the great house or be working one of the the, 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 the factories. Yeah. Uh, uh, or even the workhouse. Uh, but of course, her mother, being a seamstress, managed to keep her out of that. And her mother knew the importance of education. And so Kath won a scholarship to a local school mm-hmm. and then further won another scholarship to get to Dundee University, yeah. where she did English and ended up, as you rightly say, in Kokodi, uh, actually uh, uh, teaching uh, primary school, which the school mm-hmm. still stands to. Uh, one of the most sort of amazing things of this period was that what really defined her, her politics was not just that she was poor, but um, when she worked in the school, mm. um, she was dealing with children where during the First World War, their brothers, their fathers, their uncles, the way that the, the war was was organized in the First World War, the yeah. whole of the men from one village would fight together on the front line. And of course, yeah. when they died, they all died together. So the whole men from entire communities were wiped out. Absolutely. And that was really, really sort of, you know, sort of really difficult for Kath Duncan to, to see and understand what war was about mm-hmm. because she couldn't see the purpose of it. Yeah. But also she saw the terrible impact, particularly on the, the, the poor. And then, of course, when they returned, not only was no support for the widows, but also uh, <laughs> the devastation of, of the, the men, you know, quarter of a million men came back as amputees right. and the only way to make their living was begging on the streets from street to street around the UK as some sort of freak show and that yeah. again defined her, her, her politics and then when she was at Dundee University she met 
as to Winston Churchill's uh, uh, wife, yeah. Clementine Churchill, before she became Winston Churchill's wife. So they became very good buddies, and they were both yeah. real lefties at that time. And they became very active in the Scottish suffragette movement. Mm-hmm. And that's what really defined her life. Um, and then a lot of the stuff that I was finding when I was researching Kath was that quite often people don't do their homework properly. So when I researched this, which took me sort of four years of hard research, yeah. I quite often found that, for example, there's a really good uh, columnist writer that, that I'm very keen on mm-hmm. who had written that Kath Duncan went, uh, was, was uh, Swinston George, uh, Churchill's campaign manager in 1924 in the mm-hmm. Dundee by-election. And then went to his wedding afterwards. Yeah. But of course, the reality is Sir Winston Churchill married Clementine in 1906. Mm-hmm. And in 1917, that was the by-election in which Kath Duncan, because in those days women couldn't hold political office yeah. at all, uh, she became his campaign manager. And so she'd go to the, the, the factory gates in Dundee, she'd rally the, the workers. Mm. And so Winston Churchill won the by-election in 1917 with 87% of the vote, even yeah. though he hardly did any campaigning at all. It was all Kath Duncan. Mm-hmm. And mm. what's extraordinary that you know, a few years later, when he went to fight the seat a second time without Kath, because by 1924, she'd moved to London. Yeah. Uh, he lost that seat. So to win one of the biggest victories in, in Scottish history, mm. 87% of the vote, and then to lose it to the same person he beat uh, a few years earlier was quite extraordinary in yeah. Scottish history. Mm-hmm. It's own right. Yeah. Mm. But that really, defined, that really defined her Scottish history. It was Scotland that really shaped who she was. Mm-hmm. And it was, to a certain extent, that the conservatism of, of, of Scotland where... Uh, in 1923, she married Sandy, Sandy Duncan, who was a, another teacher, and the Duncan family, a very well-known socialist in Scotland. Mm. Uh, and she um, she married him. And when I did the research, it wasn't until I really re- finished the book that I really realized that in 1923, on Christmas Eve, when she married uh, Sandy Cockardy, uh, that was probably a marriage of convenience. What they were mm. doing was marrying to hide their sexuality. Mm, right. And they fled. London in 1924 because that allowed them to be who they were. So she went from, you know, pre-1924 in Scotland. She was this stunningly beautiful woman. She was only five foot two. Mm. She was shy. She had this amazing red hair, sharp blue crystal eyes. And her mother dressed her in the latest fashion. So she was almost like royalty in Scotland. The mm. clothes she wore very glamorous, very descriptive, very dramatic. She got involved with drama. And yeah. then when she came to London in 1924, she became very active in the Emily Pankhurst, the Cohen sisters, Daisy mm. Lansbury, woman's movement, and then became <clears throat> her own woman and therefore wore the, the lesbian fashions of the time, the, the, the men's suits, etc. So yeah. I don't really play on her sexuality because Kath never used her sexuality. For her, mm-hmm. tackling equality, tackling poverty, tackling injustice affected everybody, whatever your sexuality, your color, yeah. your faith, your gender. And that's what really makes her quite unique because she can't be defined as one group or another. Her politics were about injustice. Was yeah, the core. absolutely. And I think when we, when we kind of go back over some of those points, this is where sort of Kath becomes this figure for me that almost defies belief that we, we don't know about because this is what we're, we're talking about a, a politically active 
young female teacher at a time when women, as you say, often couldn't vote, running, going for that classroom environment to the national sort of political theatre. Um, and, and obviously, you know, the personal connections to Churchill were really interesting uh, through his wife. But that's that one thing going for the teaching environment to the, you know, the high end of the political, you know, world in such a short period of time in itself makes it incredible. But this is only just like such a small part of who the woman was and, and obviously some of the, the, the achievements that she then went on to, you know, obviously achieve, as you say, there was not a political campaign or cause that she was involved in that she ever really lost on. Well, no, I mean, there's two really important points to make. Is one that she was active in the independent labour movement, which, mm-hmm. you know, we didn't have the Labour Party we have now. Mm-hmm. But, of course, in 1920s, when the, the Communist Party formed, mm-hmm. it was really campaigning on the issues that working-class people were passionate about. It was mm-hmm. against... Uh, injustice, the working class having a, a real voice. Mm-hmm. In fact, in the 1920s, um, it was actually women that tried to establish the Communist Party, which next year, by the way, 2020, is 100 years since the Communist Party was formed in Great Britain. Right. And the women that tried to establish, Emily Pankhurst, the Cohen sisters, and uh, Daisy Lansbury, who are her Cap Duncan Circle, tried to establish the Communist Party in Gray's Inn Road in London. Mm-hmm. The Communist Party internationally wouldn't accept it because it was re- established by women. All right. mm. And so it had to have Harry Paletti. So even in the 20s, even the left was still seeing women as, you know, uh, you know they were the people that run the organizations. Mm-hmm. They didn't have any power. And the Communist Party would not accept the women as leaders of the Communist Party. It was taken until the 1930s until Kath became an elected member mm-hmm. of the committee that the ruling body of the Communist Party in Great Britain. And and that's another one that, that, that a part of what stood out for me is that um, when you consider the suffrage movement and you know the likes of Pankhurst and whatnot, um, that, that Kath Duncan is not remembered in those terms mm-hmm. as. As, as part of what makes this story incredible. Do you think that, you know, our communist uh, values... Was are, it the left? Was it because she was a communist? That's why we don't know about yeah, her. Yeah, I mean... There, there seems to be other women throughout history and British history that are more way more prominent or have any kind of recognition because Kath had zero. Yeah. Um, that's something that I was thinking was, like, is this because she was a, a prominent communist and a successful communist at the time? I, I, it, 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 that's a real, real key issue to it. I mean, we, we've got to remember that history is really taught to us by other people's agenda and a viewpoint that may not be necessarily as historically accurate as we like. So, for example, the Labour movement today remembers the Tolbuddy Martyrs, uh, you know, and things like that, but yeah. it doesn't actually remember the Hunger Marches. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the 1920s, the Communist Party were trying to reach out to cause the revolution yeah. and thought, how can we mobilize the country? And from 1926 until the 1930s, the Communist Party almost every year mobilized millions of people to march on London. Mm-hmm. In fact, at one point, 100,000 people marched on London to present a million-strong petition to the government of the time, demanding an end to poverty and for welfare reform. Mm-hmm. And the Prime Minister was so scared that he sent in the troops and there was a huge battle at Hyde Park yeah. that lasted almost a week, and the petition was vanished. It got stolen by the police the next day. 
nobody knows what became of that petition. Wow. So it's quite extraordinary that, that with Kath is that why I argue consistently that she was the most important civil rights leader in British history mm. is because, she, yes, she was involved with the suffragettes. Yes, she led the hunger marches. Yes, she was one of the, the first women to stand for Parliament in Greenwich. Yes, she took on the gas works against uh, uh, poor people's tax mm-hmm. and won. Yes, she founded the civil rights movement and the LGBT movement in Britain. Uh, but she was did so many different things. So yeah. you cannot define, define as one thing. So we have people, you know, uh, you know uh, uh, some people are defined because of their work with mm. education yep. or the National Trust or with the NHS. But CAF was leading all these organizations because it was not call to be a communist mm-hmm. even things like today the hunger marches few people know about yeah i had to look them up and i studied history you know <laughs> yeah. and, it, and it wasn't until really 1940 it wasn't until the spanish civil war which became active again it was the communist party mm-hmm. that was organizing the british brigade that went to fight in the yep. spanish civil war mm-hmm. it wasn't until she was actually involved in in that that uh, conflict and trying to mobilize the troops to fight fascism in spain mm-hmm that she um, really, really sort of came to her, her own mm-hmm. with, um, uh, you know, the international thing. She, she fought for union recognition mm-hmm. of workers in Gandhi's India. Yeah. And she, today, she's, what, some of the other things that are quite strange about her is that she's the only British woman in history to serve two jail terms. And I, I say there's a woman, but she's the only... British person in history, male, female, or trans, to be jailed twice, not for saying a single word, but jailed for the impact her words may have on the population mm-hmm. if she was able to speak. That's, that's that was, wild. <clears throat> that was something that had really sort of stood out for me when I was reading the chapters of the book. Um, when they were talking, I think it was a, a like a script from like Parliament at the time, um, and. It was the way that they were almost trying to predict the impact that the, the sort of activism and they were sort of um, judging and sentences based on the impact that the, the person would have and the words that the person would say. It's almost like... It's contradictory. It's like, yeah, it's contradictory. It's so strange. It, it, it is. I mean, some of the things that... But, you know, you've got to remember the, the backdrop of this when she was uh, mobilizing and sort of, you know, LGBT uh, people in, in Deptford in southeast London. Mm-hmm. It, normally you'd go to prison, you'd get a week's jail, you'd say, sorry, judge, I'm, uh, you know, I, I misbehaved. But yeah. she'd say, you've got to stand up and make political statements. So they would go to court and there would be the like, protesters go and support them. And they would turn their, their arrest into a political statement. So instead of getting one week's jail, they'd get 12 months hard labor. And in those days, prison meant you would certainly get some sort of disease. You would be very malnutritious. You'd get all sorts of issues. Yeah. And so it's very brave of people to do it. And it's quite shocking, really. And I want to do more activism on this. But those people that were jailed, far too many, for doing lots of things that we take for granted today are not remembered. We don't know these people's names. Mm. And I, I in my book, I try and remember the names of, of Thomas Ward and Percy Duke, all these people whose bravery quite often cost them their health. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they did it and they showed their bravery to help others. You have the same thing with Alan Turing, don't you? 
yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, although with Valentin, it was like, you know, again, he had to hide his sexuality. But with the civil rights thing, going back to the, the, the civil rights thing, mm. of course, we had the hunger marches, which was very much focused on the Communist Party. But Kath Duncan really wanted a united left. Mm. And when the civil rights opportunity came out and, and everybody was in jail, Tom Mann, Llewellyn, who were famous civil rights activists yeah. at that time, even Gandhi was in jail at the time Kath mm-hmm. Duncan uh, was standing up. They, they had a public meeting. They brought together the unions. It's really important to remember as well that Kath Duncan was also a union activist. She was mm-hmm. very pro-union. And so she brought together the unions, the left, the legal profession, um, all sorts of you know, tenants groups. And she brought them all together. And they decided to make this stand in Deptford to challenge the state uh, and have a, you know, like be the martyr and, and to have this legal challenge which would change mm. the law to give people the right to protest yeah. and the right to free speech. And uh, so she put all these people together and, and, and that included the Council of Civil Liberties. Mm. And they pleaded with her, but for Kath to do this, to stand up for this court case, for her to be arrested would mean that she would lose her job. And she'd been a teacher yeah. for 27 years, which she adored. She loved working with the children. Mm-hmm. And so she left that meeting, and when she got home, she was found all these press clippings of all these friends of hers that had been arrested and jailed. In one case, two gay guys who had been jailed five times and served 12 years jail, not for being in the bushes, not for doing anything other than being openly gay. And that meant, you know, holding hands occasionally, putting their arm around each other. That was it. And if the police had a bad day, who can we arrest today? Oh, we're going to we're going to arrest those two gay guys. Yeah. And this last occasion was where they were both arrested and given twelve months hard labour for refusing to stop loving each other. And Kath Duncan said, "Look, she was meant to address the Friends of Russia meeting in Woolwich that night. Mm. It was the only meeting in history she never attended. Quite often she did four or five meetings a night. Right. She went back to that public meeting. She said, "No, I would take this fight. I cannot go forward." and challenge and tell people that they must do this and they must challenge the system if I, when my time comes, am not willing to make a stand. Mm-hmm. And so she went to, the, to make a stand at this, this public meeting in Ninehead Street in Newcross, which still stands today. Mm-hmm. And um, everybody thought she wouldn't be arrested because uh, the focus was, she was so famous at the time. In the 30s, she was more famous than Wallace Simpson, who we do know today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so Sir Winston Churchill and everybody said, whatever you do, do not arrest Kath Duncan. And she was very shy. And she had a little box that had been an old beer box, which had been painted up with a, a red ribbon and had Kath Duncan mm-hmm. stage on it. Because even though she was doing all this high profile stuff, it was only her, her love of drama which helped her perform. So she'd stand on yeah. this box and perform. And so she went to stand on this box. And for her pure luck that day, a police officer who was new, knew what the law was, decided to be best mates with the legal system mm. and arrest her and ignored what um, uh, he had been told. You know, what yeah. the word hadn't got to this police officer that he shouldn't arrest her. So he arrested her. And that was the moment that brought the unions, the Communist Party, the Labour movement, the tenants movement all together as one. So she mm-hmm. united the left. She was a spark. She was a spark. The Council of Civil Liberties then changed their name to the National Council of Civil Liberties because of her fame and her power at the time mm. and her influence. And uh, when she went to court at Tower Bridge, uh, 
The judge again had been sent memos that he must not at any time jail her. Yeah. But Kathy knew that in order to change the law, she had to go to jail. Mm. She had to be the martyr. And so she baited the, uh, the judge. So when she arrived, um, uh, they, That's a she, said, move. Well, she said, where is, where is the person holding me to account? And there was nobody there. So she got the secretary, the, the judge had to suspend the trial, her, her charge, because they had to get the secretary of state in person to come and read the charge against her, which was <laughs> an old tactic. It's incredible. Edward. Yeah. Definitely. And so she was charged under tre- an act of treason from the 1400s, you mm. know, almost. it was crazy. And so they, they had to suspend the trial while the actual home secretary had to come and uh, put the case. So and put- even then, she still baited and baited and baited. And he gave her 12 months hard labor. But the time she arrived at Holloway Prison, the papers had been fiddled with and the governor had been told to only give her four, you know, four weeks jail, yeah. one month's jail sentence. So even though the court had given her 12 months, somebody had tampered with the paperwork that by the time it arrived at Holloway, she was only given four four weeks. And it's quite interesting that because she was so famous and there were spies watching her every moment, Mm. move and every hour of the day uh, because of her calmness, because of her profile. It's those police records, it's personal notes, which are still retained in the file. So Mm. a lot of working cars there, there's nothing on them mm-hmm. but because of her activism there is the home office police files that I were able to research to right. find out what she ate what car she got in the number plate mm-hmm. the person with, with what she was wearing so they have this wonderful data of really informed work on what she did and of course that led to the National Council of Civil Liberties mm-hmm. which we call Liberty Today and it led to the first civil rights debate in the House of Commons yeah. and so even for that alone Kath Duncan should be recognised. Absolutely. Now, just to kind of um, hark back on some of this, because this is one of the things that really jumped out at me when we were, were doing more research, was that, and again, just to kind of hark back to that, that relationship with, with Churchill uh, and the Churchill family, the commuted sentences or the you know fudged paperwork by has been accredited to Churchill orders by a, a number of folk. Obviously, it would be great to get your opinion there. But at the same time, if that's true... I wonder how that relationship was maintained because we've got this, you know, communist, you know, mm-hmm. left-leaning female agitator who's regularly arrested, um, you know, in the Churchill family. And it, it, they, they seem as if politically they should be at opposite ends yeah. of the spectrum, mm-hmm. but yet this personal relationship seems to have come into play uh, in terms of, you know, a treatment and, you know, subsequent, you know, as I say, reduced sentences and stuff like that. So I, I wonder how somebody with the ideology of Kath Duncan manages to maintain, you know, a, 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 that personal relationship with essentially one of the, you know, she's, she's calling out one of the great officers of state and court. Like, how, how do those two things go together? Yeah, I, it, it's a really a really good point, a very fair one. But when I did the research on this with Clementine, Clementine was living in Dieppe and was actually, there's reports of her going through the bins in Dieppe because she was so poor before she met Winston Churchill mm. that uh, she was literally going through bins uh, to survive. Wow. And it was only because of her poverty status that she ended up in Scotland with a relative mm. because the family was so worried about her health, mm-hmm. her well-being and her poverty status. So when she met uh, Kath Duncan, she wasn't in that circle. She wasn't yeah. the elite. 
was an extraordinary woman in her own right. And they bonded because of the poverty issue and the social justice. And there's a lovely quote where, uh, where they were both, you know, laughing together and saying, referring to the Tories as those vulgar Tories. So, I, you know, you do wonder how. <laughs> She ended up marrying Sir Winston Churchill, but I, but I think Sir Winston Churchill was really a man of his time, and uh, a lot of people. Uh, I, I'm not actually sure whether he actually physically joined the Conservative Party. Like uh, there, there has been some Tory ministers, even under Thatcher's government, mm. who were never members of the Tory Party. Okay, and I think what 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 possi- what probably happened that when. Um, so Winston Churchill, although he was seen, you know, his treatment of women was was, was viewed, you know, people were he was a bit hands on. Mm. Um, he had a lot of respect for intelligent, bright women. So in Kath's case, she was very bright. She was very articulate. She was very challenging. She wasn't right. the woman in the kitchen. She was very powerful. She held her own. Okay. And there's a lovely story when he first, when he met her at his campaign office. She wouldn't have normally helped him, but of course the left came around to support uh, Winston Churchill in 1917. It wasn't the Tory party that we know of today yeah. in 1917. The left, in the liberal left, all came to support Winston Churchill in, in 1917. Mm. He wasn't conservative, he became at that point. Mm. And he was a very poor man. In fact, the house that now is the National Museum was, was raised by public funds. P- people gave him the money to buy that house because he was a poor man. Mm-hmm. But mm. uh, in 1917, when he had the by-election and, and, and um, he thought, who do I need to fight my campaign? Clement said, there's nobody better than Cass. She can mobilize people. And she did such a good job at getting him into government that he always felt obliged and loyal to Cass. Yeah, but at the right, same okay. time, that was, that was the key. One, that he loved Clementine, his wife he adored, and, and Clementine absolutely adored Cass. And it's really interesting things that you may not be aware that to this day the the wedding photographs of their Churchill wedding in 1906 vanished. And I think one of the reasons why all those photographs were stolen from the Churchill archive was because of the association with Kath Duncan at that wedding. Remember, she was a poor woman from Scotland at the biggest society wedding of the age, and Kath Duncan was there, who would later become a high-profile communist. And then going through, although Kath was very independent, never wanted a man, Mm. Uh, so Churchill was very protective of us, so he knew that he couldn't do everything he would want to. So when they had a thing called the Battle of Death for Broadway, which led to sort of you know major changes in the civil rights movement in the yeah. UK, um, everyone there was beaten and arrested, was charged with a criminal act. Mm. The only person that wasn't charged with any criminal act was Sandy Duncan. He got a good beat and was hospitalized, but he was not charged or fined. And mm. the reason being was that Churchill you again used his discretion because he couldn't really be seen to be helping Kath Duncan, yeah. but he could keep Sandy out of jail because if Sandy had been charged with treason or violence as a teacher, he would have lost his job, which meant that the, the Duncan household would have no cash income. They'd have no employment. Okay. So they couldn't always help Kath he made sure that Sandy was out of jail so that they had mm-hmm. a family income. Excellent. And so there's all these sort of side things that politically, of course, they, you know, in later life they changed. But I think probably Winston Churchill was more of an opportunist. And a lot of the things that he did in, in power yep. is of age. And you've got to remember that, that lots of things happen and we all in our own lives 
wish we'd done certain things differently. Yeah. When uh, you're the prime minister, sometimes mm. events define you, yeah. not necessarily who you are. Mm-hmm. And I think, yes, you know, the black and tans, there's all sorts of issues that, that I have. But I think that, mm. that Kath Duncan, um, you know, recognized her friendship with Clementine and that what that's what binded her with the Churchills. Mm, okay. And it was Clementine's support for Kath. And, and of course, Clementine in the 1940s was awarded the highest award, medal from the Russian government for support of Friends of Russia. And yet it was Kath Duncan who set up the Friends of Russia. Right. But it's Clementine Churchill who, during the Second World War, won lots of praise and awards for her support for the Russian people, what she did. And that wow. was a direct consequence of her relationship with Kath Duncan. I quite liked the, the idea that Churchill was just, even though in like modern days he's, he's held up as like this sort of masculine and yeah. uh, he won the war, that his wife just ran him like <laughs> any other man. That he get told that that's what he was to do. So uh, one it, that's very true, actually. It's very Clementine was very powerful when he went to when she went to uh, Dundee for the first day of his campaign office. Cat Dunk had been playing Elizabeth the first. There's a lovely story that she's at his desk and she'd got on her uh, best finery to meet Sir Churchill in a sign of respect, but she'd forgotten to remove the white makeup. So uh, Churchill came in and he looked at her and he said. Oh my goodness, he said, it's not often you get Mary Queen of Scots campaigning for you uh, at a by-election. And she said, Winston, look at me again. She said, am I not Elizabeth I, Queen of England? And they fell apart laughing. And that's and that's the sort of the banter and the respect that he had for that woman. Fair enough. Um, that's cool. So, I mean, in terms of um, Kath herself, um, and in our reading, obviously, she's described quite often, uh, and I think one of the actual times she was charged was as a disturber of the peace, um, which is a term that, you know, I would quite happily wear. It's, I quite enjoyed that. <laughs> you are a disturber of the peace. Like, well, that, you're doing something right. Um, obviously, she was jailed twice, as we've been discussed, uh, and, you know, it was essentially, as you say, for agitating. And she was a great organiser for what we've read and what you've been telling us. But I also think that she was quite a good tactical thinker as well because when I was reading up about the, the sort of general strike in 26 I read something along the lines of that she, she was involved in making sure that none of the buses or trams in London ran during the general strike and as a sort of infrastructure blow when you're trying to organise something on that scale like that is a really intelligent way to attack the system and the fact that she was able to go out and organise and achieve that is just on a London wide basis before mobile phones and text messages and all the rest of mm. it, like, it's just, it was one of the ones, the, the stories that really jumped out at me, and, and, and again, was another one of these examples as to why this woman was incredible. It, it was, I mean, 1926, that was the year, I mean, 1924, she moved to London, she didn't join the Communist Party, she was still an active unionist, mm. she was still part of the Independent La- uh, Labour uh, Party. In 1926, the general strike was when she joined the Communist Party 100%. She got involved with selling you know, the Daily Worker newspaper. Yep. She really got active in, in hackney politics. And that was really, I mean, she'd get lots of abuse. She, she changed the politics. In Scotland, she'd had it easy with Churchill. Mm-hmm. She was on top of lorries and she was on stages. Yeah. Coming to London, it was street fighting. She was on boxes on street corners. She was hanging from lampposts. She was screaming from, from, from window boxes. She was, it was a totally different type yeah. of sort of, quite often people would throw things at her. She, she didn't just get abused, but because of her red hair, and she, they call her the red herring oh, really? or Kath Bunkum. 
and they'd throw red ochre all over and things like that. Oh. Often people would would do terrible things to her. Sounds but like the streets of London was like Twitter. Yeah. The days equivalent of Twitter, I but she used chalk to get her messages. There's a lovely story where at night time for 10 years, she'd uh, wear her husband's clothes, climb out the window, be dangled down because she lived in a high house and to get down there, there's spies on the street outside. So they'd lower her down by her ankle. She'd get onto the floor, climb over the fences and she would chalk up all the protests around Deptford and the neighborhood that she was operating in. And then she'd sneak back into the house and at that time, for doing that, chalking up, you know, the piece of chalk and writing yeah. a photo, you could get three months jail. And wow. for 10 years, she was never caught. And I write in my book, The Last <laughs> Queen of Scotland, I actually give a story of somebody, one of her apprentices, who did get caught. And I tell his story, just an example, because today we think, oh, chalking up, you know, she was the Banksy of the time. Yeah, I was going to say, she was also the first Banksy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it, you think it's a bit harmless, but of course the reality is very different. So in Hackney, when she stopped all the trams and she stopped all of the uh, uh, the bus system, she knew the mm -hmm. importance of the transport network, so she closed it down in Hackney. Yeah, and I think it, it, one of the, again the, one of the extraordinary things about this sort of you know period in her, in her activism was that. She was good at organizing people. She wasn't the usual suspect in mm. terms of how she looked and how she presented herself. And she was a great leader of people. She was great at mobilizing people. Mm. She would, you know, somebody came up with an idea. She wouldn't, you know, just think about it. She would go for it. And I think that was an in inspiration and excitement that led things to be happening. You know, later she was involved in the anti-fascist protests, yep. the cable street. Again, the labor movement today hijacks that, but the actual Mosley cable street protests were organized by the communist party. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't really until 19, the Spanish civil war when Kath Duncan met Clem Attlee and became friends with him. And he wanted her to be one of the first ministers in his government. Yeah. Uh, she seriously thought about becoming part of the Labour Party because, mm -hmm. again, going back to one of her activisms in the 30s, the gas board wanted to bring in a new tax for poor people. Right. And Kath Duncan was so incensed by it that she wanted to protest against it. But the Communist Party wanted the tax. Their view in the 1930s was if every poor people were forced to pay a poor people's tax, mm. they would rise up and the revolution would come. Okay. And Kath Duncan's view was... It was social injustice. It was wrong. She yeah. would not tolerate her poor people suffering if she could do something mm -hmm. about it. So, so she, she was more moderate than the Communist Party at that point, slightly? Totally. You know, the Communist Party was her way of achieving what she needed to achieve. Mm -hmm. But her, her core was social justice, and she would work with anybody to achieve that, which is with the civil rights movement, how she brought the left and mm -hmm. the right and the unions together as one group, mm -hmm. that it's, you know, that, that was really powerful what she was doing. So, you know, she's demonstrated many times the Communist Party. And a lot of people thought she should leave the Communist Party because after the gas works, mm -hmm. she was so badly treated by the Communist Party because they were so furious that she marched 30,000 the gas works and won and stopped the tax that she was no longer allowed to hold any office within the Communist Party. She was no longer permitted to be a communist candidate. And she was, she was a leper. The only thing they used her for was to go around Scotland and Wales trying to stop the women's groups who were starting to break away from the Communist Party because yeah. people were feeling the women were not given equal rights within the Communist movement. So they were essentially towards the end using her for a celebrity to keep their party together. Uh, exactly. Now... <clears throat> You touched on it before, and, and it was another, again, 
one of the you know myriad of things that in reading them were like wow um our, our work against Mosley uh, and the, the anti-fascism movements and obviously being involved in, you know, as you say, recruiting the international brigades and stuff like that. I mean, it's, it's again, another thing that on its own is probably worthy of remembrance, but in the context that everything else is just, I mean, it's it's wild. that I, I mean, is there something you could, you know, maybe elaborate on us for a bit here and just kind of explain to us what our involvement there was? Well, in the Spanish Civil War, her role was really interviewing people and raising finance. So mm-hmm. she did things like raise funny, money door to door, a shilling every Friday to finance ambulances to be sent to the front line. Yeah. Her best friend was Fred Copeman, who in 1928 saw her give a lecture in uh, Camberwell in southeast London mm-hmm. and was so influenced her that, you know, the power of, of, of activism and, and what was right and just that in the 1930s, he was one of the leaders of the Invergordon Mutiny in mm-hmm. Scotland, which was the biggest mutiny in British history when 15,000 members of the British Navy mutinied against unfair proposals to cut their wages. And Fred Copeman, they, they were trying to get scapegoats. What's extraordinary was that in the First World War, the reason we won the First World War is one of the big reasons was that the German Navy mutinied. Yeah. And so in 1931, in September, they had the Invergordon Mutiny where the Navy was in rebellion, 15,000 naval officers. And it's, it's quite extraordinary. Yeah. You, you probably know the story of mutiny of the Bounty, where an admiral was had 14 of his officers mutinied, and it's been made three times as a Hollywood blockbuster. Okay. And the film's made time and time and time again because it reminds you of the people in control, he got in a boat, he came back to the UK, mm-hmm. and he hunted all those mutineers down and he killed them all. Mm. And I think the reason why we don't know about the Infogorda mutiny was because those 15,000 uh, naval officers all technically committed sedition, which mm-hmm. meant they should have been hanged uh, or shot yeah. for treason at that point in history. And because there were so many of them, the Navy agreed within three days because of the First World War connection, they were so terrified of the mutiny spreading that every one of their demands was met. They were not stopped their wages. Yeah. And when they came into Portsmouth and other ports, that they were quietly disbanded and leaders were got rid of in the Navy. Mm-hmm. But they couldn't come after the Navy officers because... Uh, and the crews, because they had this pledge that they would, you know, they wouldn't face any prosecution. Mm-hmm. So they came after the Communist Party, right. and Fred Copeman, in 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 his uh, submission to the, uh, uh, you know, the the, the the government ministers of the age and yeah. the press, said he didn't know Kath Duncan, and because he knew that if they'd linked it to Kath Duncan, and he'd admitted he'd been influenced by Kath Duncan, she would have been hanged yeah. for the Infogorda mutiny. Uh, almost, but what she he, she would have been hung hung for the definitely for the Infogorda mutiny as the influence behind that. But what she did, which was very what he did, which he knew that and he denied he knew her. Right. And yet, when I did the the um, uh, my research, I found that that was a lie, and he'd covered it up because he was actually on the electoral roll for living at her house during the time of the mutiny. <laughs> so it took me until. 2017 to actually uncover the truth. So if the government had done a bit of work, I looked at the electoral roll, they would have realised that Kath was an influence, and therefore she would have been hung for treason yeah. in 1931 or 1932. Well, it almost seems like in 
times at that sort of critical time, the first and the second world war, whenever the the sort of normal people won or had like a battle that mm. it's just not been recorded. Yeah. <laughs> like we like you're saying, we know about mutinies that are yeah. won by the like the establishment. Yep. And we we know all about the the miners' strikes mm-hmm. and the the eighties and Thatcher and the police and, and all that because they won but, <laughs> because they won but we don't we don't hear about these things no. when the normal people sort of rise up and get the ones like you're talking about in the navy. You, you, you don't. And I think one of the other sort of extraordinary things about uh, the legal uh, uh, case that was used for, for, for uh, Cat Duncan was called Jones vs. Duncan. It was at the King's Bench, a really interesting in case. And although, of course, they had the, the first civil rights debate in the House of Commons as a direct consequence of the jailing of Cat Duncan, what was really, really quite telling was that um, in 1999, the police rediscovered that act when they were dealing with green and common women. Mm-hmm. They suddenly found, and, and the people that protested against fur trade, there was a new type of activism in 1999, the, a bit radical, a bit streety, to a certain extent a bit similar to what it is today, but a bit more radical, a bit more violent to a certain extent, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And so a load of women were on the way to green and common, and the police mm-hmm. used the Duncan First Jones Act to the case, sorry, to refuse the coach's permission to drive to Greenham Common. And so therefore the women were turned back, even though they'd hired coaches to go to Greenham and never got to Greenham Common. Mm-hmm. So it took until 1999 until the Duncan First Joan Act was reviewed in law and the reasons to stop people from protesting on the grounds that what they may do or say may excite a riot. Yeah. Uh, or a revolution was actually scrapped. And, and going back slightly earlier, when you're talking about, you know, she was you know, the keeper of the peace, you know, Cat uh, uh, Duncan, uh, the last person to, the most famous person to be uh, charged with that act of, you know, uh, uh, of the peace yeah. was Wat Tyler, who led the Peasants' Revolt, who was, ha- was, was hung, and his crew for the same offence. So Cat Duncan was the f- one of the few people in history to be charged with that serious offence who was not hung, shot, or executed. Wow. That's I mean, that isn't it? It's just, uh, this has been such, a, such an awakening. Um, in, in terms of, you know, uh, one of the things that, I, you know, I think we can learn from here, outside of the, or, you know, organisational capabilities and, and, you know, the various causes that she stood with, um, and I think it's relevant today is, the, the anti-fascist side of thing was that as as part of the communist party was that more of a personal thing about how did she get involved there well the the, the, the communist party were, were very well organized so of course they were very active in the hunger marches mm-hmm. the next big thing was the injustice of the spanish uh, uh with Franco because when yeah. the spanish civil war came we had a socialist government in spain which was democratically elected mm-hmm. Franco came in with his troops and tried to overthrow it and of course the british you know the, the british state and the european uh, governments sided with franco instead mm-hmm. of the, the democratically elected government of spain yep and so the communist party sort of decided that this was unjust and to certainly extent, i do wonder how Kath address this issue because in one respect she was very anti-war she every protest she ever went on was peaceful yeah she advocated peaceful protest she was very influenced by gandhi mm-hmm. along those lines she was britain's gandhi in, in in that respect okay but 
because of her, you know, when she did the protests, all of her protests, even though thousands of people followed her, they were always peaceful and she mm-hmm. adhered violence at every level and made clear a public speaking, mm-hmm. no violence. So mm-hmm. when the Spanish War came along, it's very odd how she dealt with sending men, knowing from her Scottish history, yeah. the impact of the loss of men on their lives mm-hmm. was quite extraordinary. And and one of, the, one of the stranger things was that, again, what people don't know is that in the Spanish Civil War, one of it, it was very strict. They w- would only let men of a certain age go and fight in the war. You had to be 40 plus to fight. Okay. But of course, men lied about their age. They sneaked their way into Spain to fight because people were very um, passionate about fighting fascism. Mm-hmm. And of course, with Bosley, and they knew about <clears throat> the impact the negativity of him and they didn't want it happening here so people were driven by ideology quite often they'd never done anything they'd never had a gun they'd never you know had a fight and fred copeman who was one of these great leaders of of the infogorda mutant etc he um did this um he he, had been a boxer in the navy Mm -hmm. so because he'd been in the navy um, and he'd been a boxer, and he was very tall. He suddenly became a commander in the British Brigade okay. because there was nobody with any experience. And one of Cass Duncan, because she had this LGBT house, mm-hmm. one of her friends um, was a, a young woman, a lesbian woman, who was the only woman to be killed on the Spanish Civil right in the Spanish Civil War right. um, because she pretended to be a man wow. and when on the front line. She was rescuing one of her. Uh, comrades who was shot mm-hmm. and as the um, the comrade was rushing across the uh, the battlefield you know wounded mm-hmm. this young woman rushed across the battlefield to, to carry off his, her shot comrade and as she did so she was shot and killed and it was only when once she'd been shot and killed and they were taking her clothes off that they realized that she was a woman and her name and I, I think we need to know her name as well it's called Felicia Brown Felicia Brown Wow. And she was a member of the London Communist Party. And she was the, the, the first British casualty in the Spanish Civil War and the only woman to die on the front line because women were not allowed to fight. And she was one of those people that lodged in Kath Duncan's house in Deptford and one of her inner team. So, you know, even at the most personal level, Kath Duncan, you know, was sending people to fight, people that she loved, Fred Copeman and others, and knew the impact but felt the fight against fascism was worth the blood the sweat, the tear, and the misery that went with it, which it still is today. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, you know, it, the issue is still... And I think all the issues that Kath Duncan fought, whether it's poverty, austerity, mm-hmm. soup kitchens, we now have food banks, whatever yeah. you say now, this book, my book, The Last Consumer, is as relevant today as it was in the yeah. events mm-hmm. in the 90s. Absolutely. And we may have changed the names, but we need to learn from it. And I, I think it's really important that people really engage with their history mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. define your history by finding out for yourself because so much is written that is slanted in a way to influence you to mm-hmm. follow a specific agenda. You know, even yeah. recently... Or in this case, Duncan. not written. You know what I mean? Exactly. That's a really, really good point. And I think it's really... You know, I didn't know about Kath Duncan when I started writing this. And the more I wrote, I, it made me really furiously angry. Why is there no statues? Yeah. Why is there She's black. a heroine. Yeah, though in my own area now we have a, a park bench and a plaque for Kath Duncan, which is great. But she should be more known in Scotland, and I, I am working really, really hard. She should come out of the shadows as mm-hmm. a national history figure. And whatever your politics, she was the most extraordinary woman. Yeah. And 
which is inspirational to everybody, whatever your gender, whatever mm-hmm. your politics. She's one of the greatest women in British history and one of the most amazing women in Scottish history that Absolutely. needs to be celebrated. I couldn't Scotland agree should be proud of her and Scotland should be marching at the front of every Pride meeting, every Labour movement. Kath Duncan should be there in some form because her activism and what she stood for is going on now in every part of Glasgow. Yep. Now, there would be women who are doing her work today. Absolutely. Now, in terms of the, you know that inspiration, like, Let's let's kind of talk about about how how Kath has inspired you. Obviously, we've we've talked about you know the book the the last Queen of Scotland, um, but that's that's not where it ends, is it? Because as well as being an author, you've you touched on it. You've also got the play on Liberty, um, and I think there's also is there a heritage festival that you've been involved in running as well? Yeah, I mean, how this all, which is which is I suppose would sort of give Kath some comfort, really, is that. I, I ended up establishing the largest food bank in Great Britain, you know, seven days a week, feeding 4,600 families. This is in London, just two miles from the city of London, wow. establishing mm-hmm. the largest food bank in Great Britain. Thank you for And of course, that. it's all right. Well, you know, it's scandalous that we do it, but, yeah. you know, I did it. A friend of mine, Barbara Raymond. And what was so, you know, horrendous, hor- hor- it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I, I wanted to give people more than beans. Yeah. So people would donate food, but they wouldn't give us really sort of anything else. Mm-hmm. So um, people started to, uh, so I decided I wanted to give people fruit and veg and fish and, and toiletries and, and books for the children. So yeah. I wanted it to be, you know, a place of dignity and solidarity and support, not a place of misery and vouchers and, and because, yeah, you know, how could I the community. Yes. And so to fund all that, I needed to do something. And so I, I set up a, a Deptford Heritage Festival every year mm. to raise funds for the food bank, but also to, to build pride in community. Because when gentrification comes along, one of the first things it does is it eradicates history, community, sense of where you belong and where you were being. Mm. And therefore, it, it leads to isolated, detached mm. communities. Yep. So the festival is really important to do that. Uh, which again was sort of the principle, you know, I didn't really know about Kath in that way. Yeah. And then I thought, how can I keep paying? Because more and more people were coming to our food bank. We wouldn't take vouchers. We were doing pets. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wrote a book called Food Bank Britain, which, which changed the way all food banks now operate in the UK. Because when I started, um, you had to pray. When you went to a food bank, yeah. you had to pray for and what people don't know is the biggest operator of food banks was set up by Tories mm-hmm. who were part of David Cameron's inner circle who wrote the big society. When yeah. they wrote the big society, they realized people would starve, and that's how the first food banks came about. So I knew that was challenging. Is, the, is all that, that Trussell? Yes. Yeah. It's not anymore, to be fair, but when it was founded, it was mm-hmm. founded by Tories. did a bit of research to find the history of that organization. Yeah. Got a great but at the moment, we need every food bank, so I, I'm not going to track Of course, it. of course. Uh, and so to raise the funds, I thought, what else can I do? The, the festival, more and more people coming through our door. So I, I wrote Food Bank Britain to, 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 to fund it. And then when I was looking around, I kept coming across this woman. I found this old George Stevenson online story about this woman called Kath Duncan. Mm. And I asked my neighbor, I had a, an elderly neighbor who was 90, who said, yeah, she just lived across you in Deptford. You mm-hmm. know, she was here in the 1940s. So I found out that she lived in my street in Deptford where I live. And right. so it gave me a bug. So I started to sort of investigate. And, and sadly, much of what George Stephen wrote is incorrect. Right. Uh, but it was enough to get me going on this 
mm-hmm. journey of writing about her play. And so it, I think Cap would, would sort of see some justice that today her work is now living on that, you know, through my food bank and through my outreach work, that I'm really carrying on her work in her name. And now her book and her play funds food bank projects, funds outreach projects. So when you buy my book, which people need to do because that's what funds my work, but also brings people like Kath out Mm -hmm. of the shadows that all stories are told, um, her work still goes on and and her life has influenced me in such a way. I'm, I'm, People say, I'm in love with this woman. And, you know, <laughs> I, 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 I am with her. I, I love her passionately I in a way. I think I am as well, no, to be honest with you. <laughs> you know what I mean? She, and you can imagine she was fun. She had, and, and the extraordinary thing, when I staged my play in February, one of the most amazing things that happened to my play, a 99-year-old man called John White came to my play and he'd marched with Kath in the 1930s. Wow. And at the end of the play... And, and I'd actually got my, Emily Carding, who plays Kath Duncan in the play, mm-hmm. had Kath Duncan's hat. We actually managed to find somebody that had her hat from the famous images of her in the 30s. Okay. So they wore a hat. And so she came out with all the cast at the end of the play. And John White held the hand of uh, Emily Carding's hand. Mm-hmm. And you could see on his face that that wasn't Emily's hand he was holding. Yeah. It was... Kath Duncan's face and I said to him what was it like and he said I'm with my comrades and for me as a writer to have somebody who'd lived through the 30s mm-hmm. who knew Kath Duncan was holding a hand and saying that my the char- characterization of my play and my book mm-hmm. was was so accurate and I think that's the reason that was is because you know, the love that I found that I grew for her, but also key to writing her biography, which makes me different from most biography writers, is that I'm an activist at my core. Mm -hmm. So when things don't go right and when you protest, I understand the spirit of it. And so when I'm writing it, I understand how she would have felt, how she would have thought, because I've been there and I've done it. Mm -hmm. And I think that makes my book all the powerful and my play all the powerful for that Absolutely. experience of being an activist telling another activist <clears throat> story. And I've tried with the book not to be so political. Of course, it's mm-hmm. a story about all of the working class histories between the two wars. Yeah. But the focus of my book is really telling an extraordinary story, getting Kath restored to national treasure status mm-hmm. and actually saying, you know, the working class are pretty awesome when we're united or when we're together and that we've got stuff that we need to do today and it's never been more important with the rise of fascism and Trump Absolutely. and Boris that we as working class people actually stop fighting each other and actually lead the real mm. fight that we need as one group. I mean, uh, I mean, our audience will be as obviously impressed by your personal passion for both activism and Kath Duncan, without a doubt, um, the, the, your work's been excellent. And one of the things I want to just touch on as we're starting to wind up here was that w- when we were reading and researching the, the questions about LGBT um, and, you know, their marriage and various other things were alluded to, but it wasn't something that was a huge part of what we read into. Um, it is something that obviously you've raised and a sort of number of times through the course of the interview, and we kind of want to just kind of touch on it a wee bit if we could, um, because it's another one of these, again, incredible things that in its own right probably would be enough to remember her, but again, in the context of the wider thing, for the time and what she was also doing, it's 
it's something that I think we're, we're, we're audience would love to hear about. I mean, yeah, we're I, talking I, I about the house. The, the, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's a really really important point. I think I, I tried not because Kath didn't want to focus on her gender or her sexuality. Yeah. I didn't want my book to be. I wanted my book to be about this woman's amazing work mm-hmm. you know for social justice that yep. was the focus mm-hmm. not whether she was a lesbian or trans totally. historically wise we couldn't really because of course we had a different language it wasn't lawful in those days mm-hmm. uh, in all the police files they called her a deviant revolutionary and deviant a house full of deviants which was the word used for homosexuals yeah. at that period of time but where it really starts interesting is in 1923 she married in the Colton tea rooms and kokadi mm-hmm. and um at that time, her and Sandy were not just, he was the PE instructor, he was gorgeous. Uh, they were both, she was stunningly dressed like a Hollywood, you know, film star. Yeah. They were the most glamorous, one of the most glamorous uh, couples in society in Scotland in the mm-hmm. 1900s. And they knew everybody. They were much loved, highly respected. Yeah. And yet at their wedding in the Carlton Tea Rooms, the only people that attended were two people, which was the minimum people you needed to witness uh-huh. a wedding in law. Mm-hmm. Now, her mother, who died with her, who lived with her until the age of 90, was a devout Christian. Yeah. Her mother would have been at that church service had it been a real church service. Yeah. Her sister, Margaret, would have been at that service had it been a real service. Mm-hmm. Okay? That was the first clue. And then, of course, in 1924, they moved into a house full of you know, women, and uh, Kath, again, was one of the most glamorous women uh, uh, of that age in that group. Mm-hmm. And Harry Paletti, who was the leader of the Communist Party, was a well-known womanizer. Mm-hmm. The only woman in that household he never molested or made advances of in any of the other reports of the time mm-hmm. is Kath Duncan, no other man. And then one of the other things, which is, which is sort of quite powerful in itself, which is quite tragic, is that when Sand died in 1942 of, of tongue cancer, he died alone in Glasgow. He went back to Glasgow alone. Now, you or I, if you are married to someone, you have a partner that you love, yeah. you're going to stay with come what may. And, and I, on a personal level, I'm a gay man. Mm-hmm. My last partner died of, of, of cancer. And, and, and recently, my new husband, only in April, was diagnosed with cancer. Those come through it is fine. Yeah, you know, I, would never want to part, I would never want to part with them for love nor money. So, again, at the end, the fact that he went back to Scotland and left Kath Duncan in London mm. uh, is, is very odd to me. And so there's, there's lots of issues. And then, you know, the, the stories of the LGB house, the gay people that live yeah. there, uh, the West-powered gay people. So I, I didn't want to sort of, uh, her fashion sense, when it, a lot of the press articles say, uh, try and refer, they, they refer to her sexuality by referring that, oh, she's very, you know, deviant in nature, but mm. this can't be true because she's married to Sandy Duncan. Yeah. So there's lots of examples where reporters... And euphemisms of the time. Exactly. And then when mm. I met John uh, White at my play, I said, did you have rumours of her sexuality? People did, they know. And they said, we all knew, but nobody talked about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think you've got to remember that you were jailed in the 1930s for being a gay man. Mm. Lesbian didn't exist. And I had this sort of issue, and I had this slightly with the LGB History Month people, that they wanted me to out her. And my issue was, you know, yes, she was LGBT, certainly. Mm. Was she a lesbian? Probably. But she could have been trans. Yeah. And I, I, I didn't really want to label her 
when I'm writing a serious book that's written about history, say she's definitely a lesbian or definitely trans, when there was no evidence for either, mm-hmm. other than she certainly was LGBT. Yeah. So I, I thought that would be up to the reader to decide, or somebody else maybe to do research. But but other than knowing she was, a, you know, in that group as myself, mm-hmm. uh, which I didn't know when I started it. I mean, yeah. that only came out once, I'd, you know, all the links mm-hmm. it made clear, um, made that the story. And, and, and I do find it sort of sad, again, that a lot of the LGB history, uh, you know, sort of uh, media have not really covered this story because, again, she's a communist and it's not cool. If she was on a contestant Love Island yeah. should be front page of every scene. Yeah. But because, because she's an anti-fascist and a communist, she's still not cool even today. And with mm-hmm. all the homophobia that we're hearing about two women on a bus only two weeks yeah. ago, I still find it shameful that my community still will not put calf at the front of any Pride Festival this mm-hmm. year. That's a shame. Because, and it's probably a remnant of its time in that it was illegal. There were, you know, very strict laws and stuff like that. But, it's a shame that, you know, she couldn't have been more herself in that regard if that's who she was because I think the gay rights and, you know, LGBTQ, trans and so far, uh, so much, all the rest of that kind of grouping of groups, sorry, um, would have really benefited from her activism and her passion because when you see how successful and how effective she was throughout her career, you know, maybe some of the modern attitudes to gay people wouldn't he be as backwards if somebody like Kath Duncan had been allowed to be more herself in her time? Yeah, I, I, I think w- when she did move to London in 1924, the fact she changed and dressed in all the lesbian fashions of the day, mm-hmm. which is one newspaper described her wearing the lesbian fashion of the day, yeah. um, uh, she... She was. She wasn't. She moved. London was. Scotland was very conservative, and I think that they had everything in Scotland. They had a great job. They had their family. They had a great network. So to completely give all that away to move to London in mm-hmm. 1924, they did because that because that was really where they believed they could be open with their sexuality yeah. and be who they wanted to be. And I think that sense of freedom, even though it was illegal, mm-hmm. would still gave them a better lifestyle living that was in London. The closest London. they could so get I, at the time, yeah. That was the closest, and I think that was the reality. Mm-hmm. Of it. And of course, you've got to remember that with all what was, and the, the empowering of gay people and the civil rights thing, you know, it, you cannot campaign against something mm-hmm. that doesn't exist. So if homosexuality is illegal, mm-hmm. it's very difficult to make it legal if it technically doesn't exist. Yeah. So I think that the civil rights movement, which she did so much for, and the civil rights, that led later to the freedoms of gay people. Mm-hmm. And I think that the way she empowered people that went into her house, you know, all their stories, Percy Duke and and all the rest, was a way of saying to gay people, you know, don't take it anymore. And that led to, you know, the 60s Stonewall, which was the big event in America where gay people said enough is enough. But you've got to remember, this is the 1930s. It took till the 1968 until American gay people said, we've had enough of the brutality and they made a stand. Mm Mm-hmm. And that was in 1968. So, you know, it's the time. Remember, just looking gay mm-hmm. got your prison sentence. And her issue was if she was jailed, she wouldn't be able to help people yep. with their, you know, fighting slum land, or she wouldn't be able to help people fight for welfare reform. Mm-hmm. She wouldn't be able to do all the wonderful things that she did yep. if she was in jail. Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, it's been great talking to you today, I want to just sort of wrap up with a sort of final question because 
as we've said a number of times here, you know, there is a relevance in Kath's story with events today and attitudes today and how and why they need to change. And there's a blueprint there set by people like Kath that shows us how we can organise and, and fight against the injustices that we see. So if you were to kind of just wrap it up, what would you say that the main lesson that we should take for Kath's life is? And, you know, how, how what, what lessons can we learn and, and take into the modern world? What, what, what should we be able to take ways for this? I, I think that it's a really difficult question because I think that the, the, the main thing that we all need, particularly those of us that are of the left of politics generally mm-hmm. and of a social justice persuasion, is that we need our heroes um, to be aware of because they inspire us. They're the stories. They mm-hmm. are the people who have campaigns to copy and the ones that have shown that we can win when we're together. Yeah. And we need those stories now. And so it's really important people on the left actually buy i don't you know i'm not you know promoting my book because i i don't it's you know financially benefit from my book but it's really important these stories are told and spread <laughs> we to promote your book. that's so, what we'll be doing <laughs> yeah but but it, it's really important that people have these stories because if you have the blueprint as you rightly say mm-hmm. that is the evidence that you as an individual have the power and that everyone that's listening to your show today they may feel they're ordinary but in extraordinary circumstances like how Kath found herself mm-hmm. she became extraordinary she wasn't rich she wasn't athletic she was five foot two a wee lass yep. from from Fife. Mm-hmm. And and that is inspiring that anybody, whether you're a disabled person, you know, in your bedroom with Twitter, mm-hmm. whether you're a you know a, a refugee stranded in Greece, there is so much we can all do together if we stop fighting each other and actually say this is what we've achieved when mm-hmm. we fought together. Absolutely. Let's take that forward and let's actually smash fascism rather than the reality of what it is today. Well, this is this is a horrible statistic. Did you know in the German government today? There is Parliament. Sorry, there is more elected fascists serving in the German government than there was under Adolf Hitler. Okay, it wasn't something 19, I was aware of. Ninety-nine fascists, uh, fascists have been elected to the German Parliament, mm. and only thirty-one under Hitler. And so, my point is that you know that we may not have concentration camps that you're aware of. Mm. Say that to gay people who are in Chechnya concentration camps yep. today say that to people in serbia in greece in hungary who are refugees stranded in camps mm-hmm. today we're not talking about these people yeah but the actual issues are the same there may not be ovens yet mm-hmm. but there's still people dying in other ways and, and so the that. stories still must resonate okay. and we must not forget the past and we just never forget those that fought and won our cases because they're the ones that show us and drive us to achieve more. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Ray, I think on that, that's kind of the, the, the perfect way for us to wrap up the day. Um, I really just want to thank you for taking the time to come in and talk about the book and your experiences and, and Kath's story. I mean, yep. it's been a hugely eye-opening experience. Um, I was actually sitting talking, my, my daughter yesterday went to see Maiden Dagenham in the theatre for the first time and was coming back and telling me about the stories of, you know, the strikes and organising and, and, you know, her views yeah. on that at 15 and I was able to come back to with some information about Kath Duncan and uh, it's something that, you know, I, 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 yeah, we need to be teaching, we need to be talking about, we need to reclaim that part of our history and, and actually make it, you know, we're in again. So thanks for your work on that area. Can I, can I quickly just say something Absolutely. on that? Is that one, of, 
one of the things that really surprised me when I wrote my play Liberty, mm-hmm. I wrote it thinking oh, it would be a left audience, okay? Mm-hmm. And what surprised me, because it was history and it's part of LGB History Month, school groups came to see the play. Yeah. And I'd, put, I'd written some songs to make the play. It's quite a heavy piece. So I, I wrote some songs to break it up to make, you know, relevant, you mm-hmm. know, there's a, a tango song, it's a barbershop song, whatever. Yeah. And what really empowered me in a way that inspired me and, and made me so proud of my work was that there was children there of 10, mm-hmm. 10, who sat through the entire hour and 15 minutes of the play yeah. without using their phones, without going through crisp packets, without mm-hmm. chatting to each other. They were spellbound. And even their teachers afterwards came up to me and said, Ray, you've got a hit play here. Mm-hmm. We've never seen our kids enjoy and sit through anything for an hour, 15 minutes in the way they sat through your play. Mm-hmm. So I think she may be a woman of the 30s, but for young people, if you've got a great story, they're engaged equally as much as adults Absolutely. if given the opportunities. And it'd be nice for them to have some heroes that one they made out of CGI as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Ray, we'll, we'll obviously be um, you know sharing the book and you know anything else that we come across in the future um, to help support you. If you ever get the play up the road in Scotland, hit us up because we'd absolutely love to see it. Mm-hmm. But again, 100%. just thanks for your time and, and best of luck in the future, okay? Perfect, guys. Look forward to your tweets and stuff on it. No worries. Cheers, Ray. Thank Thanks you. Take care, guys. Have a good weekend. You too.